from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Former U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill spent more than 30 years in elected office before leaving the U.S. Senate in 2019. But she's reinvented herself as a prominent political commentator on MSNBC. And on the latest episode of Politically Speaking, McCaskill sits down with me for an extensive interview about her career, the changing media landscape, and the state of the Missouri Democratic Party. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. I am in a Kirkwood St. Louis bread company, not Panera, by the way, uh, (laughs) uh, with uh, a very special guest today. Hi, it's good to be with you, Jason, and welcome to Kirkwood. (laughs) Yeah, it's former Senator Claire McCaskill. Um, I, I, I have a... You're kind of from everywhere. Like, you grew up in rural Missouri. You were elected from Kansas City. I guess you probably lived in Jefferson City, Central Missouri, when you were a statewide official. But you, you've been in St. Louis for a while. Now that you're not in elected office anymore, can you say which part of the state you like living in best? Uh, well, listen, St. Louis has a lot I love, um, primarily my husband and five of my seven children. And... Uh, 10 of my almost 14, 11 of my almost 14 grandchildren. Um, So there's a lot to love here. Um, I have a very special place in my heart for Kansas City. I went there after law school. I didn't have any family there. I didn't have any political connections. And Kansas City welcomed me. And that's where I began my political career and had maybe my favorite all-time job, which was Jackson County Prosecutor. Um, so it, it's hard for me to pick. It, picking between Kansas City and St. Louis is like picking between my kids. I, I really can't do it very well. One has the Chiefs I love. One has the Cardinals I love. So it, 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 it's a close call. I, I, have a, I have a personal question for you. Um, I moved to Missouri when I was 18 from suburban Chicago, and I've lived here more than half of my life. Does that make me an, a Missourian? Um, it does to me, okay. but unfortunately, probably to too many Missourians, it does not. We are not probably going to be in the top 10 states welcoming people from other places. It's a pretty insular state well, in here, that way. Here, here's the reason I asked that question. My kids were born here, so I, I don't know if they are now back to being first-generation Missourians or they're fifth-generation Missourians, because my family grew up in St. Louis and Kansas City, and I think that they deserve to know for continuity's sake what, what number generations Tell they them are. fifth. I'm going to say fifth. So when they run for and office. And there won't be enough journalists around to call them on it if they run for office. I, I know Jason Kander, because <laughs> he grew up in Kansas and then moved to Missouri, got called on that. And uh, I, I, it generally confused me because I, I love this state, even though I have fondness for Illinois. But we're not here to talk about generations. We're here to talk about a lot of things. And the first thing I want to talk about 
is what you're doing now. You have been, uh, I guess, an MSNBC political commentator since you left office in 2019. And I think I've said this to you before. I've really enjoyed watching this transition. I know that you're not universally beloved by everybody, which I think we'll talk about. But it's just been really fun to watch you kind of trans take on this new role. And I want to get a sense of like what you have to do in order to be on MSNBC all the time? Mostly I just have to be myself, um, which is, you know, it feels like in some ways white collar crime because I love politics. I know it very, very well. I did it my whole life. I've done it my whole life. Um, I'm a talker and I, although I probably wasn't always as candid as I wanted to be, I was proud of the fact that I typically would actually answer questions and I would make myself very, very accessible to the press um, and didn't shy away from going places where there were going to be people challenging me and asking me hard questions. I mean, you don't do 50 town halls in rural Missouri without coming away with a few scars if you're somebody like me. Um, so what they're really doing is they're paying me to talk about something I love and to be incredibly candid and hopefully be able to simplify complicated things for um, the viewers of MSNBC. And it's been a blast. I, I hope people can tell how much fun I'm having. It is, um, I'm way happier than I thought I would be. I actually was worried because I had been on that, you know, almost like a hamster wheel. You know, it, when you are doing politics in Missouri, particularly if you're a young woman and you're a Democrat, it is hard. Because you started in 1982, right? In 1982, in my 20s, is when I first ran for office. And, uh, you know, it, it was never, the, the pressure was never ending. The commitments were never ending. The schedule was never my own. And so I assumed when I quit doing it, there would be this big vacuum in my life. And nothing has been further from the truth. I have been busy and happy. And um, I feel guilty. I've said this over and over again, but I almost feel guilty I'm so happy. Well, I mentioned, uh, I, I personally like watching you. I particularly uh, appreciated when there was the, impe the second impeachment and you were telling the viewers like, you know, I don't think they're gonna go through with calling witnesses because it's gonna be a whole lot of work for not a lot of results, which was not a popular opinion because I think a lot of people wanted witnesses um, I, I think that I even put out a tweet that said it may be good to get to the bottom of what happened on January 6th. But it seemed that I don't know whether you had intel like inside information in the Senate or you just knew how like Chuck Schumer and everybody worked. But I think you were pretty dead on about what was going to happen. And I think maybe just explain that particular point of why that experience in the Senate can be helpful on instances like that. Well, um, I am old-fashioned in many ways and one of the ways I'm old-fashioned is that I see my time in politics as a time where I made really good friends uh, a bunch of them really good close friends and I am blessed that many of them remain in the Senate and as long as I am careful about what I say and how I say it in regards to what they share with me I don't ever want to you know, obviously violate a private conversation I have with my former colleagues, I find out a lot of stuff. And that is valuable in what I do now. I also know a lot of stuff about how it works. Um, and Chuck Schumer, 
I know very, very well. Chuck Schumer and I talk almost every week. And we have, um, I'm very close friends with both him and his wife, Iris. In fact, just had dinner with him a couple of weeks ago when I was in New York. And um, so it, it gives me the opportunity, as long as I don't abuse it, to know a lot of what is happening and how it's going to happen. So that I can share with, with the viewers. I, I mentioned the feedback because it's not always been 100% positive. Um, even though I, I would classify you, I, I know that you tried to message yourself as a centrist to Missouri voters, but on a lot of issues, I think you take mainline Democratic positions. You were for abortion rights. You were for gun control. You came out for gay marriage in 2013. Um, but it seems like a lot of people, especially on the left, people who are fans of Bernie Sanders, sometimes tweet at you very angry things because I don't think that you're left enough for them. I, well, I, I want you to kind of elaborate on that. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Um, most of the people who do that have never been, either never been to Missouri or never been outside of the very blue areas of Missouri. I used to tease my friends, Emanuel Cleaver and Lacey Clay, uh, before you chew on me, why don't you come with me to Pettis County? Why don't you mosey down to the boot heel with me? And, and, and it's not that I needed to win those areas, but I had to cut the margins. I had to talk about things that were relatable to people outside of the urban areas. And I navigated that pretty well and had a really progressive voting record. I think the thing, only thing that bugs me, I don't care about the hate. I mean, I've got, I've got skin thicker than a 200-year-old oak tree. I yeah. mean, I've got some really thick bark on me. I don't care about that. What I care about is this ridiculous notion that had seemed to take root after the election that if I'd only been more liberal, I would have won. If, if, if I'd only been, you know, more progressive, I would have won. And first of all, it's flat not true um, because all you have to do is look at the numbers. I mean, we rang the bell in Kansas City and St. Louis. I think I actually compared your numbers to 2006 because I think that was a, the fairest comparison. And you actually did better in largely black areas of St. Louis, especially. I didn't. I don't think I looked at Kansas City, but I think it was Both also the places. same. Both places. I mean, I had 8,000 more votes than Lacey Clay did. In, in the, in, so um, it, when I when I lost in 2018, now he ended up losing two years later. But um, it, you know, it wasn't. This wasn't a problem of turnout in progressive areas of the state. It wasn't a problem of margins in black communities or any other communities. I absolutely, we far exceeded our numbers. This was all about people turning out that totally bought into Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump camped out here, as you remember. So Donald Trump, not Josh Hawley, gets credit for that win and credit for a, an, an almost six-point margin. He had much more message discipline than Todd Aiken did. Do you think that that also played a role that he didn't, you know, implode like your prior opponent and pick the right messages in order to prevail? I think that um, uh, Todd Aiken was authentic to who he was. Todd Aiken was exactly what you saw. He believed everything he said. Uh, I think if I were to sum up Josh Hawley, it would be, he's not very authentic. Um, he is, uh, I'm not sure I know what he truly believes in, and I'm not sure he knows what he truly believes in. I want to stick with the topic of media, because I, 
I have now worked in the Missouri political journalism area for 15 years. I'm only 36, but I started when I was 22. And a lot has changed uh, how I cover both state and federal politicians. And I, I could explain my perspective, and I probably will, but I want to hear how you think things have changed. If I had to pinpoint one thing that I was most worried about, and there's a lot of areas that I could go to here, but I am really worried about journalism in the political arena. I mean, if I think back, Jason, when I went uh, to Jefferson City, there were probably one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, maybe 10 journalists covering Jefferson City just for the two, three, at that time, three major metropolitan, four. There were four major metropolitan newspapers, the Globe, the Post-Dispatch, the Star, and um, the, um, I don't even remember the other name of the Kansas City Star. And when I was prosecutor, there were uh, half a dozen reporters covering the courthouse and the police department and the court system. Now, as you well know, um, I can count on one hand the full-time Missouri journalists who I think know Missouri politics, on one hand. And that's for the whole state, uh, to say nothing of what is going unreported in courthouses and police departments um, and, you know, everywhere else in the community. So I grew up knowing that if, if, if I did something wrong, it was going to be reported on. Um, if someone else was corrupt, they would be found out by journalists. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think, you know, I mean, I remember the day during the middle of the pandemic when the Missouri legislature legalized brass knuckles. Now think about that. It is in the middle of a crisis of public health that our country had not seen in my lifetime. There were all kinds of things that needed to be addressed. And they were passing legislation to legalize brass knuckles. Now, in my day, that would have been, you know, I would use an unladylike word right now, but it starts with an S and it ends with show. Because the journalists would have been, you know, they would have been highlighting why they were doing this, who was doing it, what was the need to legalize brass knuckles, and what is going unaddressed. But it passed with barely a notice. And that, to me, was a startling revelation of how far we've fallen in terms of the ability of a hollowed-out press corps to cover the things that people need to know about, particularly in the state legislature. Well, I have obviously a lot of thoughts on this, because when I started in 2006, I worked for the Columbia Daily Tribune. And back then, that paper was pretty robust, and someone like me was pretty well supported to do a lot of different things. Like, I worked there for two and a half years. I went to Hannibal days twice. I went to Lincoln days, no matter whether it was in Springfield or Branson or St. Louis. Um, during the 2008 presidential contest, I traveled to Rolla to see Barack Obama, which was, you know, think about that now, like a Democratic presidential candidate. I was there. I, 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 I remember. remember that. <laughs> um, and I, I also got to see like John McCain and Sarah Palin in St. Charles. I could say a lot of things about that job that didn't end well, but I can say that my editors supported me doing the things that needed to do to cover the political environment here. And I just learned a ton. 
not only about statewide politics, but rural Missouri politics. You probably hear me all the time talk about, oh, why have Democrats done so bad in Northeast Missouri? Because I was up in Northeast Missouri covering it. Now, I think there's not as much support for journalists to do those types of things because the newspaper industry in particular has collapsed. The Columbia Tribune is a shell of its former self after it got bought by Gatehouse and now Gannett. And a lot of the other newspapers are the same way. And I'm not saying public radio is immune from a lot of these financial issues, but I think a lot of it just is from the financial constriction of journalism that has a lot of complicating factors to it. I'm not sure if you have a response to that. Well, I think you're right. I, I think it's really true that, and the other thing that has happened in journalism is in order for the business model to work, you've got to get clicks. You've got to find something that's viral. Um, the, the deadlines are immediate. I mean, I'm, I'm so old. I remember when we knew that if we were going to get something in the morning paper, it had to be there by 10 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. um, well, that, that, those days are long gone. Or try getting something in the afternoon paper by 10.30 or 11. Exactly. I, I honestly don't miss that, by the way. But well, I, I, but, but the point is, is that it not only is the, the press corps hollowed out in terms of expertise and just boots on the ground, ability to cover everything that needs to be covered because there's not enough of them, they also are being driven by uh, algorithms instead of by what is a long story that needs to be written that's complicated so people understand it. That that investigative, when I think back to the Terry Ganeys and the Virginia Youngs and the Steve Kraskys and the Joe Mannies of the world, you know, especially, you know, if you look back at, and even, you know, there's some reporters in Kansas City that were really well known for long investigative pieces that changed things. I mean, that put people in prison, that did the kinds of things that I think readers want, but there's no money in it now. Right. And no matter which model you follow, there's pitfalls. So if you have a commercial media outlet, it's completely at the mercy of what the economy is in advertisers. If you have a nonprofit out, uh, model like St. Louis Public Radio, the Missouri Independent, it's also dependent on donors. And there's always going to be instances where people are like, oh, that entity is donating to you. Your coverage is biased. Like when I worked for the St. Louis Beacon, I think Rex Singfeld gave us, I don't know, ten, twenty thousand dollars So we had to put on, after every article we wrote about him, that he was a donor. And people were probably like, oh, you know, Rex Singfeld is... Um, Buying this. And behind this. Yeah. And even like a situation like the Washington Post where Bezos bought it, like that doesn't necessarily mean that those papers have unlimited money because those business people expect, like, efficiency. I, I, I think that... If we're gonna get through this, I don't know if we will. I don't think the newspaper will exist in 10 or 15 years uh, the way it is now. I think big papers will. I think small regional papers are gonna disappear, which I think is very problematic for a lot of reasons. It's, it's kind of gonna be up to news consumers to decide that our work is worth paying for. It's all about money. And I wish it was more about like philosophical enterprise, but journalists need to get paid. And if there's no money coming in, we're a lot more constricted. So. That's exactly right. And I think that that's what worries me the most because, um, and I talked on David Simon who wrote The Wire, who was a beat reporter at the police department uh, in Baltimore. And, you know, he and I talked about this in a hearing. You know, the, the institutional knowledge of reporters that are covering local and state government, that is gonna go away 
And Katie bar the door because it's already Looney Tunes. Right. It's going to get much worse. I mean, I've only I've had 15 years of experience, and I'm one of the most experienced Missouri political reporters in the state. And I don't think that's a good thing. No. Uh, I do want to ask about like social media and uh, the rise of technology because social media has become this all-consuming thing in information dissemination and journalism. And, and you have actually kind of dove in head first with your Twitter account. I think you had a Tumblr for a while. Um, what's kind of your view on how social media has changed not only news media but just politics in general? Because I think that that has had a big impact over how people consume information. I think it's good and bad. Um, you know, I was one of the first senators to have a Twitter account. Took a great deal of ribbing about it in the, in the caucus. I um, I used to walk into caucus and. I mean, people would just start making fun of me. You know, I remember Dick Durbin saying, oh, Claire, are you going to tweet what you had at Taco Bell yesterday? And, you know, stuff like that. And I kept trying to explain to them, it was like a public bulletin board. And if you want to communicate with people, just think of it as putting something up on a public bulletin board, and then you're going to be fine. Um, I mean, I remember Dianne Feinstein saying, well, I don't want people, my privacy invaded. I go, well, Dianne, do you send out a Christmas card? And she said, well, yes. And I go, well, what's the difference? That's you trying to communicate publicly to the people that you work for. Mm -hmm. And so clearly the ability to communicate, especially with authenticity, if you do it yourself. Because you do it yourself. A lot always of, have. A lot of lawmakers have their staff do it. Right. And I think that there are pros and cons to that. The con is it doesn't sound very authentic. The pro is that, if you're, especially if you're a senator, and I know senators are very, very busy, they can focus on doing senatorial things as opposed to tweeting. Well, I think communicating with the people I worked for was pretty damn important. Yeah. I thought it was more important than me um, spending another 15. I mean, and it doesn't take any time. Right. It's just what's on your mind. And, and so I, um, and I loved it that I wasn't edited. I mean, my staff never saw what I tweeted before it went out. And I made mistakes, but they were authentic mistakes. Right. I mean, my most embarrassing one was when I said, um, you know, the, I, I think it's time that we really, I don't remember what the context of the tweet was, but I said pubic option instead uh, of public option. And um, <laughs> we've all, we've all done that. Right. It's but not, it, it was authentic mistake and it, you know, got a lot of attention at the time, you know, it, but it, who cares? You know, it do, was not that big a deal. Do you think it's good though, that we have a president now who clearly is not tweeting? I mean, the staff is clearly tweeting. And I think that I'm not going to deny that Donald Trump's social media use had like a positive impact for his political pursuits, but obviously it had a lot of other negative ramifications too. Are, are you okay with Biden just letting others tweet for him? I mean, I'd be, I'd be fine if, if Biden tweeted himself, if as long as it wasn't something that he was doing at two in the morning, and as long as he wasn't lying as often as other people brush their teeth. Mm -hmm. I mean, the problem with Trump tweeting was not that he was tweeting. The problem with him tweeting was that he lied constantly and said things that were irresponsible and harmful to the public discourse. I mean, he really took the presidency to a place that I didn't think any president in my lifetime would do that. And so, um, I, I mean, I think it's fine that a president doesn't tweet. But I don't think that we should ever decide that Trump is the model for a presidency tweeting because he was not a model for anything. 
when it comes to ethical or honest communication. One red flag early on, and this was in 2015, it wasn't a tweet, but he did an interview with somebody, and he called Ferguson one of the most dangerous cities in the world, along with like Oakland and other cities. And I, having covered Ferguson pretty extensively, uh, that was a huge red flag, because if you actually go to Ferguson, I'm not saying that there's not crime there, it is not more dangerous than Kabul, Afghanistan, or places in Mexico. It's a it's a suburb of St. Louis. Well, first places- of all, it's a lot less dangerous than many other places in Missouri. Right. Much less comparing it with dangerous. I mean, that was just him lying. And it, that was a dog whistle for race. Right. He was trying to tell everyone, but, if black people are there, it's dangerous. But, but here's why that was so disgusting. impactful. Like, when I would say, this is not true, people would then try to say, yes, it is true. Look at this statistic here. Look at this statistic there. I mean, it really did have an impact on how people perceive things. And you could, that was just one example. Well, the biggest example we have now is the big lie. Right. I mean, that's going to have permanent and lasting impact on our elections, what he has done and what he continues to do with the support of every Republican elected official in Missouri. Every single one. I do want to talk about that because I'll I'll say into this microphone Joe Biden won the election I don't even really think the election was that close I know some states were but like he won Michigan by more than Trump I think he won Pennsylvania pretty solidly yes by more than Trump by Arizona Wisconsin uh, Georgia were very close but he won and I have covered elections before that got overturned because of election abnormalities the Bruce Franks Penny Hubbard race and the uh, Susan Carlson, uh, Stacey Newman race. You have to reach a threshold where the irregularities would impact the election. And there was never even close to anything that proved that. So I'm, I'm saying that, and I'm not saying some people say or anything. I'm saying that because that's based off my experience. With that being said, I can guarantee you there are a lot of regular Missourians who do not believe that. And if a member of Congress or a U.S. Senator said what I just said, they would get primaried and they would probably lose because this is a base problem. So I want you to address that reality. Even if what I said is true, people just aren't absorbing that. Well, um, that's what was so frustrating about the big lie is that the excuse that was given by Um, primarily Josh Hawley is who did it in the Senate. I mean, he does get credit. He should get credit for causing January 6th because he was the senator that broke ranks in order to play to the base and to play to the Trump people. Um, The rest of the senators weren't going to do that. Um, McConnell had succeeded in explaining to them that there was no good that was going to come of it. Josh Hawley did it, and he did it for blatantly political reasons. And... The, the, the irony was the excuse was, well, people want us to look into it because there were irregularities. No, people wanted you to look into it because they'd been lied to. They'd been lied to. And those guys all know it. They all know they were lied to. So it is really astounding to me that they are continuing this. Now, let's talk about it in the context of Missouri. I will give you that right now, standing up to the big lie would cause Missouri Republicans problems in primaries. And I would even give you that right now in Missouri that somebody who is lying 
winning a primary in most legislative districts, state legislative districts, will still be able to win their election. But the time will come if they continue down the road they're going down, where they are playing to the cheapest of seats, where they are overturning the will of the people on Medicaid expansion, where they're going even further and cutting Medicaid. The time will come when there are districts, whether it's in Jefferson County or whether it's in Warren County or whether it's in St. Charles County or Cass County or Platt County, that those, those districts will begin to turn more and more purple and the right candidate will be able to win those seats. And when that starts happening, then you'll see some kind of moderation of the crazy stuff they're doing in Jefferson City. But for right now, in Missouri, this primary calculation will work for them. I don't think it's going to work nationwide. I think that the people in the Senate are making a mistake. I think the people in the House are making the mistake because I think independent voters and sane Republican voters together with vast Democratic majorities is a mathematical equation that will be very hard to overcome by people who have embraced the big lie. I mean, I think Liz Cheney is right. I think they're going down a dangerous path for the future writ large of the Republican Party. Well, what's the incentive for them not to do that? I mean, after Josh Hawley did what he did on January 6th, a lot of people thought his political career was over. And then he has like a huge fundraising quarter. Um, it, it seems like he's not really that vulnerable in two years if he runs for reelection. And there are, there are other people that voted to object who probably aren't vulnerable either. Like, what's their incentive for doing anything else if they, they're not challenged electorally for this? Well, the old-fashioned me says doing the right thing ought to come back in fashion, you know, relying on the facts instead of just lying. Um, but I don't think Josh Hawley will ever be president of the United States. And that's what he was, that's what he was gunning for, pardon the expression. Um, he was trying... To he has been on a path of, I, hey, listen, I'm not going to give anybody trouble for being ambitious. I was a very ambitious young woman, and it served me well through decades of political life. But his ambition is so blinding that he has gone so quickly from swearing off politicians to being the most power-hungry politician, maybe in Missouri's history, that he actually believed by doing what he did, it would put him in a good place to run for president. I don't think it's done that. I, I do have to ask this question. You only lost to two people in your career. One was Josh Hawley and one was Matt Blunt. Um, it seems like from this interview and from social media, you're a lot more publicly critical of Josh Hawley than other people you've run against for win or lose. Um, I, I want to ask why, because I think that every time you've run since 2004, they've used the same archetype against you, that you're like this rich, out-of-touch lady and your husband's a slumlord, basically. That's been <laughs> the same thing every time. I'm not saying it's true, but it doesn't seem like you hold the animus against Matt Blunt or Jim Talent for doing that, but it seems like you aren't very fond of Josh Hawley for running essentially the same campaign. I, I'd like to know why. Well, the only regret I have about my political career is how unfair it was to my husband. Mm -hmm. I will say that just up front. Right. Um, terribly unfair. In fact, um, Susan Collins was m moaning to me during her election this time about what they were doing to her husband. And I said, are you kidding me? You want to talk to me about what they do to your husband? Do, uh, don't a lot of Republicans like your husband, too? Oh, yeah. He's a, he's, he's a great, honest... I think, Kit, I think Kit Bond was like, I'm excited for... 
Claire McCaskill to come in because I like I, I've known her husband for years. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. a big fan of his. They like, loved him. I mean, I used to make the joke that my husband is the kind of guy that, you know, self-made first job out of school in a steel mill, created thousands of jobs been wildly successful he is the archetype of what republicans love except he was married to me right. so then he became a tax cheat and son of a bitch so um but continue yeah. continue um here's the thing um politics is hard and i know that when you run for big offices it's going to be very unfair in fact my father told me right before he died just remember honey what you've chosen to do is never going to be fair and so that's, you know, you take that in stride. Josh Hawley's a little different. Um, he wouldn't go into St. Louis and do a town hall. He won't ever. He limited what he would say and when he would say it. He was the first candidate I ran against that I frankly thought was kind of dangerous um, in terms of the way he viewed what he was doing. Um, the cold calculation. Um, and, I, and also, I'm not in politics anymore, you know, um, and I'm never going to be again. Yeah. So I am freed up now. And I spent a long time after the election and didn't say anything about Josh Hawley. It's just when he became, you know, head of the Looney Tunes in terms of let's fist pump the resurrection, uh, the insurrection, rather. Um, but I knew some of the things he'd said, you know, but it just didn't catch root in the campaign were really dangerous. You know, when he was blaming the birth control pill for sex trafficking, you know, at a minister's meeting, I realized he would say whatever he needed to say in front of whatever audience he was in front of. But it didn't, people didn't care because it was Trump and Trump embraced him and he was Trump's guy. So all the problems with what he had espoused, I mean, he was way more extreme than, than Todd Akin way more extreme than Todd Akin. And just to play devil's advocate, there could be some people who are like, you know, Jim Talent lost to you and he never says a bad thing about you. Like, why would you take a different approach than that? Just because you're different people, basically? I, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I've never said a bad thing about Jim Talent and I've never said a bad thing about Matt Blunt. You know, I mean, it's not that, I, I get that when you lose, you can be a bad loser. You know, and you can put down the person you lost. And frankly, I don't make it a habit of, I mean, I have certainly tweeted some things about Josh Hawley, particularly since January 6th. But I spend much more time talking about the problems in the Republican Party and the civil war they have on their hands between the Trump base and what I call the Danforth Republicans. We'll be right back after this quick break. Well, let's look a little bit more forward-looking and talk about the future of Missouri Democrats. But before we do that, I, I want to ask you a question that I've always wanted to ask you. One of the things that I noticed, especially after Roy Blunt got elected to the Senate, is you two seem to have a pretty good working relationship, even though you ran against his son and his dad ran against your mom in a state rep race. Uh, I've, always, I've talked to Joe Manis about this. I'm like, how is that possible? How could somebody work well with somebody who was a political rival not for multiple generations. I, I just kind of got the sense that you two are politically mature enough to set aside things when you have to actually work together and you actually 
and maybe respected each other. Like, what, what, what was, what, what was with that? I've I, always been I really think, interested in that. I think that's true. I think there is mutual respect there. Um, I think we, uh, I think political maturity also has something to do with it. And by the way, that's very out of vogue now. I mean, I remember back in the time when they used to say being an incumbent is such an advantage. Um, these days in the Missouri Republican Party, all you need to do is wave a gun around at black people and you can be a candidate for the United States Senate. I mean, that's how crazy it's gotten. So a lack of experience is a good thing now politically. People have this jaundiced, cynical view of anybody who's done politics. Now, by the way, this doesn't apply in any other any other career choice. I mean, if you start in the mailroom and work your way up to the CEO of the company, you're lauded as the American dream. If you start in the mailroom, which I did as an intern in the Missouri legislature and work your way up to the United States Senate, man, get her out of there. She's been around too long. So um, Roy and I both had similar experience. We both did county government. We both did um, state government. We both, um, you know, believe in going out and actually appearing and being in front of the people we work for. He spent a lot of time traveling around Missouri as as, as district as a congressman and the, the whole state as a senator. I did the same thing. Um, so we related to one another and we liked each other as people. And I was just somebody who always believed. I mean, Kit and I got along fine too. He was really irritated at me because I thought earmarks were really bad and earmarks were his coin of the realm. But other than that, um, Kit and I got along fine and still do. Um, so, it, you know, I, I, it's what, it's what I referenced it earlier in the conversation. Yeah. I consider Roy Blunt a friend of mine, and now there's no political downside to admitting it. <laughs> Were you, I wasn't surprised he decided not to run again. Let's take a, a side that he didn't vote to object to the Electoral College. He's like 71. He's been senator twice. He was secretary of state twice. I don't think he really has anything else to prove anymore. He's not going to be Senate Majority Leader because there's two other people ahead of him. There is really some benefit in just being like, okay, I've done a lot of things. I want to go do something other than being in elected office. Now, there could be some conspiracy theories that he didn't think he was going to win, but he told me that Trump called him and said, I will endorse you anywhere, even though he has stood up to Trump a couple of times, not just the Electoral College, but he was against his tariff policy too, which is not a small deal. Um, so it kind of just shows that you don't necessarily have to agree with Trump for him to like you, which is a, probably a whole nother conversation. Well, look at itself. Elise Stefanik. I yeah. mean, she voted against his tax bill, for gosh sakes. Yeah. And they've anointed her as the, as the, as leadership. But yeah, I, he, um, I wouldn't have run again if there was anybody else. Um, you know, Jason had just lost. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of me had hoped that Jason would wait and run, um, but he, I don't blame him. He wanted to go for an open seat and it looked ultimately winnable and frankly it would have been had it not, had the national politics not been so prevalent that year. If he'd been in a non-presidential year, I think Jason would have won. Yes. Um, but um, there really wasn't anybody else that was willing to run mm-hmm. and so I felt a duty to run. Um, Roy doesn't have that problem. There's plenty of people that want to run. In fact, there's a, thousands of people that want to run for his seat. And I, he, he's been in Congress long enough to see, and I saw it too, and it's really bad now, people who didn't know when to leave. Mm-hmm. 
there's a bunch of people there that should be gone. They are way too old to be doing what they're doing. And it is um, really not good because they're not who they were. They are mere shells of the senators they used to be. And that's, you know, and, and Roy has a close family. I have a close family. I mean, I've told him, you're going to love it out here. He's going to have lots of opportunities. I mean, he'll have some opportunities I don't have because he doesn't have a big mouth like I do. I mean, I'm sure there'll be boards that will be dying to have Roy Blunt serve on yeah. corporate boards. Uh, I mentioned Matt Blunt earlier. I talked with him in 2019. I did not get any sense that he missed being in electoral politics. Yeah. So I think that I'm sure that he could show Roy Blunt the way about enjoying yourself. Right, right. But I, I want to talk about kind of how the Senate race is going to go. There really isn't like the obvious person to run for this cast of thousands against Republicans. Like I mentioned this on Twitter, you have to go back to 1994, the last time there was a Democratic U.S. Senate candidate that was not either a statewide official or an incumbent. And we're, it's looking, unless Jay Nixon decides to run, which I really doubt he's going to do, I think he's enjoying being out of office too, you're going to have either a former state senator or somebody who has never run for office before run against either a former governor, an attorney general, a member of Congress. On the surface, it doesn't look good for the Missouri Democrats. Like, what do you think? Um, I, I think it's a little early, and I think it all depends on how the Republican primary plays out. Um, the fact that Eric Greitens is leading in the polls uh, gives me hope. Um, everyone who says, oh, Eric Greitens is a shoe-in to be the next United States senator, uh, I don't believe that. And I'm not sure most Republicans that are thinking clearly believe that. Um, so and the more people that get in, the more his chances of winning go up. Unless there's a runoff. I'm sure you, I'm sure you were following that in Jefferson City. I think that the Republicans really want a runoff to box him out. Yeah, uh, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Or you could get McCloskey versus Greitens as the top two. That could backfire as right. well. You could. So it, I, I think it all depends on how their primary plays out. Um, I think Jay uh, might run. I'm not saying I'm not breaking a story here. No. I I'm, I'm think he might run. I think he, um, you know, the coalition you have to put together in Missouri is, as you said, it's very tough because you have to just hang the moon in the progressive blue areas of the state, and then you have to cut the margins in rural Missouri. I think Jay can cut the margins in rural Missouri. I think he would have some work to do to make sure that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party was enthusiastic about him, because he had always done the, the political exercise of moderation, cutting the margins in the rural areas and, and um, but you know, a, a good example, the last time Jay ran statewide, the boot heel didn't look like what the boot heel looks like now. No, I mean, people don't realize how politics have shifted, particularly in the boot heel. Southwest Missouri is no longer the epicenter of the Missouri Republican Party. Southeast Missouri. It's Southeast Missouri. And Jason I Smith is in a commanding position in terms of that Senate race. Right. If he were to get the Trump endorsement, and he were to run, then he, I think, waxes Eric Schmidt. 
I think Eric Schmidt, I don't care how much he pretends that he's a right winger, he's not. He's a moderate Republican that is pretending to be a right winger. But I don't care how much he pretends to be a right winger. I don't think he could overcome Jason Smith if Jason got Trump's endorsement and ran. I want to talk about the rural, the the decline of rural Missouri, because yes, this has been a pet issue of mine, but I think it's a really important thing to talk about. I've spent some time over the pandemic traveling around southeast Missouri. I've gone to state parks, and I've also visited towns. Some towns are prosperous, like Cape Girardeau. Others, like Charleston and Donovan, there's basically nothing there anymore. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I think it's because some cities diversified economically and others didn't. But the common thing is Trump is just wildly, wildly popular there. I see signs everywhere I go from St. Genevieve to Ripley County to Iron County, which, which voted for Barack Obama. Why do you think it's changed? And is there any way back for Missouri Democrats in that part of the state? It's really a head scratcher. I, I, I think um, what Donald Trump did, he's a master marketer. And he tapped the vein of, I'm getting screwed over. I'm an other. People look past me. Um, He tapped that vein. He spoke directly to those people. He said things that you're not supposed to say if you're running for president of the United States. He talked like they talked at, you know, the VFW hall, um, having a beer and a chaser. Um, And he really appealed to the grievance that people have about how their lives have turned out. I mean, what the bottom line is, people have worked harder, worked longer. They still can't afford to retire. They can't afford to send their kids to college. They can't afford to take a vacation. And that is, you know, there's a palpable grievance that's wrapped up in that reality. They're not doing better than their parents did. And they don't see their kids doing better than their parents did. And so that's what Donald Trump figured out. And he made it all about the Mexicans and the Muslims, and he made it all about the other, that, that, that you know, they're all getting free stuff, you're not. Donald Trump was really good at, at finding that grievance and relating to it and making that the centerpiece of who he was. And that remains. And it's going to remain that way until they finally look around and realize the reason that rural Missouri is struggling is because hospitals are closing, it's because roads are crumbling, it's because bridges are dangerous, it's because schools are not getting funded, it's because we're not attracting businesses to Missouri because it's seen by national business leaders as kind of a backward place now. Um, This is not you know, it, we don't have the Sun Belt that puts us up in c- competition. We don't have the great weather. We don't have the things that they have in Arizona or they have in Texas or they have in Colorado or, you know, th- th- we don't have that. So you have to have policies that guarantee logistics, that guarantee a workforce, that guarantee health care. And none of those things are happening with the leadership of the Missouri Republican Party. So you're going to see a dwindling of economic prosperity, except for agriculture, in rural Missouri um, until some of those things change. Do you think that the ideological sorting of both parties has played a role, too? And here's what I mean by that. Um, I don't think that conservative Democrats, and I, when I'm, I'm being specific here, pro-union, pro-social safety net, anti-abortion rights, anti-gun control. 
I don't think that they are a viable part of the Democratic coalition anymore. And conversely, socially liberal Republicans aren't part of that coalition either. I'm from suburban Chicago. Mark Kirk was my congressman for many years, and then he became a senator. He was pro-choice, pro-gun control, pro-LGBTQ rights, you know, very hawkish on foreign policy, and also, you know, would vote for any tax cuts. But that type of Republican doesn't get elected anymore for various reasons. And you don't see, with the exception of Joe Manchin, because I guess he's a political master and a political monster, as uh, Brian Nieves once called Chris Coster, by the way, uh, you don't really see that type of Democrat anymore either. So I think when a rural Missouri voter looks at the National Democratic Party, and they may have leanings toward some of the things I mentioned, like being pro-union or pro-Medicare, Medicaid, they're like, well, everyone is pro-choice pro and pro-gun control. There's no place for me anymore. I, and I know that some Democrats, especially here, have rejected that and have said, we got to go more on what we believe in and not pander to that. So uh, that's a long windup, but I'd be interested in Well, the, the Republican Party has done a very good job of putting the cultural issues front and center, mm -hmm. guns, abortion, gay rights, um, you know, and to some extent immigration. I mean, rural Missouri depends on immigrant labor. Yeah, and but, I, I can't say Missouri Democrats have been very progressive on that either. No. Not you? No. Not I remember Gosser. when we were considering immigration reform and the, they, they called me wanting me to do a, a go around the state and hold, you know, town halls on immigration reform. And I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. Farm Bureau was, of course, behind the bill. They wanted the bill. And I said, well, if you get Missouri Farm Bureau to do it with me, I'll be happy to do it. Well, and by the way, when I told people in rural Missouri that Farm Bureau supported immigration reform, they said I was a liar. So, um, it, you know, here's the thing. I think that the cultural issues will continue to divide us. I also think Donald Trump has chased a lot of educated Republicans into the Democrats' arms. And I don't think that's going to change in the next several cycles. It's an interesting quandary for somebody like Ann Wagner. Ann Wagner is from the Kid Bond, Jack Danforth wing of the Republican Party, like Roy Blunt. She's not from the Trump wing. And by the way, so is Eric Schmidt. They're all from the, what I would call the normal Republican wing of the, of the Republican Party. The, and, you know, she did a, a, a great job in defeating a formidable opponent two years ago. But it doesn't appear to me that she's trying to throw elbows to win this primary. And I could make an argument that one candidate who would speak to fiscal responsibility and economic prosperity and protecting small businesses, that they could win a Republican primary if there's enough candidates in it. And she would be a likely one that could win it if there were enough candidates in it, if you didn't have the runoff situation. Right. Well, this is the reason why we're talking today. Right beside you are baked goods from Nathaniel Reed Bakery, because I said on Twitter while I was sitting on a bench in Donovan, Missouri, during one of my uh, rural pandemic mental health exercises, that uh, I didn't think that uh, Biden would get over 60% in St. Louis County. I will be honest with you, Senator. I knew I was going to lose that bet, but I just wanted to have a fun, you know, post-election right. bet. Uh, but yeah, there has been growth in the Democratic fortunes in, here in St. Louis County. Kirkwood used to be a 50-50 place, 65-35 Democrat. Uh, Webster Groves used to be 50-50. I think it voted 75 or 85%. I live in Richmond Heights, the fifth county count, council district, which used to be 
a Republican used to hold it 80-20 Democrat right now. And even parts of West County are starting to get purplish. But as you mentioned, Ann Wagner won by six. And a Andrew Koenig beat Deb Lavender. Like, how do you explain that type of phenomenon? That basically? Deb Lavender race is a real head scratcher for me. I, I mean, I, I, um, you know, if I were going to Monday morning quarterback, I would probably have gone um, for Edric Koenig's kneecaps more aggressively than they did because he is a right wing guy. He is way out of step with his district. He is that district is. I mean, I won that Senate seat mm -hmm. barely, but I, I won it. I think that the, the reason that he won is he went door to door pretty ferociously, and I don't think Deb Lavender did. It was probably because she didn't want to go door to door during a because pandemic. of COVID. But yeah, I mean, there is some value in meeting voters face to face. I, I would assume that I know I saw tweets of Wagner going door to door in the last couple weeks. I'm sure she did something similar. She's a very smart political operator, but but continue. Well, I you know, I, I just think that um, you're going to continue to see the ideological partisanship in Missouri as long as it keeps working for the Republican Party. And, you know, power, you know, power corrupts and absolute power absolutely corrupts. They have absolute power now. They cannot blame any Democrat for anything. So when jobs don't grow, when there's a, a, a bridge that collapses, when there are anything that happens, it, they are they own it all now. And eventually there will be a scandal. Now, you would think the Greitens scandal would be enough. I mean, taping up your mistress in the basement of your own house while your wife's gone and, you know, ripping open her shirt and throwing, spitting water in her face. You would think that would be enough. Well, I, I, I got to <laughs> just say this, Senator. I know that before that House report came out, I don't think you were part of the people who thought he should resign. I assume you wanted his woes to hurt Josh Hawley and you made that calculation. And I think you two both called on him to resign within eight minutes of each other. But like, that that was your calculation there, right? Well, it, it first of all, it didn't help me politically to call for his resignation. Mm -hmm. It being in the headlines helped me mm -hmm. politically. And he wasn't gonna, you know, up until then, there was no likelihood that he was gonna resign. And, and I think Roy Blunt went on some national show and didn't call on him to resign, and, and people were mad at him for doing that. But I was sort of like, do you really think if Roy Blunt went on Face the Nation or Meet the Press and called on Greitens to resign, he's going to do it? Like, right. Of course not. It's a little bit like Matt Gates. Right. I, I, I don't think that that's a Matt Gates, I think, will eventually resign. Mm -hmm. um, and I will criticize those people who are not at least removing him from committees at this point. Mm -hmm. I've not, I don't what? think I've said for him to resign, but they should take him off committees at this point, especially Judiciary Committee. But it is one of those situations where Greitens, um, it wasn't, you know, it was a combination of things that Greitens represented. And people need to remember it was the Republican Party that chased him out of Jefferson City. It wasn't the Democrats. Right. And obviously Democrats didn't have any power to do that. But I do take him seriously. Like there are a lot of people in Missouri and Republican politics, voters I'm talking about, who will vote for him, no matter what millions of dollars are spent against him. So do you, you mentioned that you think Democrats can take an opportunity on that, but there are a lot of like political observers who think that the party is in such bad shape that someone like Greitens wins the primary. He's a U.S. senator. Like, how do you avoid that? I, I, I don't think he is. Um, first of all, if Greitens has to be careful because if he goes too far and he calls this woman a liar, 
um, I mean, the thing that, in talking to people who listen to her testify, I mean, and I spent a lot of time in a courtroom, as you know, Jason, with victims of sexual assault on the stand. Credibility is inc really important, and you can smell when somebody's telling the truth in those situations. And everyone said this woman was totally credible. In fact, they even said in the, I in think, the this, report, in yes. the House report, this was a credible witness, and this was Republicans that said this. So if she were to come forward, if I guess there's another wife that's back there somewhere that's never come forward and talked, I mean, I just think when there's bad things you've done in your life, you can assume if you try to gain power, they're going to come out. Didn't hurt Donald Trump, and that's Greitens' calculation that it won't hurt him. One other question before I let you go. You said that you're enjoying being at a political office. I can kind of tell. Is there anything you miss about being in elected office? You know, I miss um, the collegiality of it. You know, I miss, you know, being able to see my friends you know, every Monday night, you know, and during the week and having lunch with them, um, my, my fellow senators. I'm, I miss the, 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 the personal interactions that come with politics. I actually even miss walking into a town hall in a place where I know 90% of the audience would just as soon see me ride off on a broom. <laughs> I, and, I, and I have to say, the reason I talk about my trips to rural Missouri so much is I loved traveling to rural Missouri, not only because they have great state parks there, but a lot of those towns I mentioned have tremendous history involved. Like Charleston, Missouri. That's yeah. where Warren Hearns is from. Right. There's a big bus there. There's a museum, but it was closed. I would have gone into there for sure. I know you probably love this state more than I do, but I do love traveling to different parts of the yeah, state. Yeah, so I miss that part. I miss the, 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 the interaction with people. And it's been heightened by COVID because there's not a whole lot of interaction. But on the list of sides of things I miss versus the list of sides... Of things I don't miss, uh, the don't miss is much longer than the miss. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for your time. You bet. For all of our stories, stlpr.org. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Follow me on Twitter, Jay Rosenbaum. Claire CMC on Twitter. Yep, Claire CMC on Twitter. Thank you so much. Thank you. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking.